Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. All right, in this uh, New Testament series that Pastor Kristen started, we're looking at the epistle, uh, epistles or letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. And now, I, I know these kind of uh, sessions can... Uh, you know, you get into history. Some of you like history. Some of you could care less about history, and and then you're you're just basically walking through a letter. But uh, I encourage you, if you can, if you've got your phone with you, to follow along. If you've got your Bible, uh, mark it up. I, I would encourage you, if you can, bring a notebook, um, uh, even if it's just a doodle in. Uh, to, to, while things are going on, uh, I listen while I doodle. I, I can do that. Is anybody else a drawer while you're listening? Um, so, thank you, Cat. Cat's Cat's got my back here tonight. So, um, but I, I uh, encourage you to do that. We're we're looking at the Pauline epistles, and Paul, also known by his Jewish name of Saul, was a leader, a Jewish leader, and you you probably heard of him. He had a remarkable conversion to Christianity from Judaism. He was thrown from his mule by a blinding light, and uh, he was on his way to persecute Christians, and he got knocked off, and that began a, an amazing conversion in his life, and, and he would end up becoming uh, a missionary, an apostle. The word apostle means the one who's sent, and he would uh, go throughout the known world and teach uh, and preach the gospel, and he started churches uh, everywhere he went, and Pastor Kristen did an, uh, uh, an amazing, a marvelous job uh, the last uh, week introducing uh, Paul, and specifically she introduced uh, the first and second Corinthians, it, its letters written to the church in Corinth, and so I encourage you, if you didn't listen to that beginning section about Paul or didn't get a chance to, I encourage you, that'll give you a little bit of context about who Paul was as we continue this series. But tonight we're going to look at the letter um, that was written that's called the, the Letter to the Romans. And uh, you'll find the book of Romans, just as a side note as we're kind of diving into Scripture, you'll find the book of Romans next to the book of Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Um, but it's important for you to know when you're, you're looking at that, that that is not a chronological order of Scripture, that while it comes after Acts, it is not actually in chronological order. Uh, the, the New Testament is really set up in different sections. You've got the Gospels, you've got Acts is the history of the church, and then you have Pauline epistles, general epistles, and then the book of Revelation. The, the Pauline epistles, though, even though they're, they're uh, in a certain order, they are not in chronological order. So that doesn't really help you uh, much. But the, the real reason they put them in the order they did is simply that Romans is the largest of the books. It's the largest of the letters. Romans and then First and Second Corinthians are the next in length. And, and some would argue that Romans is kind of the, the capstone, and that's the, the major epistle of, of Paul's. It, it is the longest. It covers, it's the most uh, uh, concise as far as doctrine or, or the, the largest 
content full of doctrine. And so, uh, but the reason it comes after Acts is just simply because it's the longest of the letters. And it's considered a major doctrinal work, and uh, it's a, uh, a really major work of Paul. Let's consider why the book of Romans was written, or why the letter to the Romans was written. First, we consider where the church was. So it's pretty simple, right? Romans was written to the people who were in the city of Rome, the city of Rome, Italy. Uh, Kristen and I I had a chance to uh, go there about 19 years ago, and it's a city that is rich with history. It's amazing, though, when you consider the book of Romans that that Rome had already been a city. By the time Paul wrote this, Rome had already been a city for almost 800 years. And think about the oldest city in America today. Does anybody know what the oldest city in America is? All right, St. Augustine in Florida started in 1565. So the city of St. Augustine is 455 years old. The, the oldest city in Ohio, does anybody know the oldest city in Ohio? Marietta, Ohio. All right, so 1788, 232 years old. And we think that that's old. Think about all the history that's happened in America within that time frame. And here Rome is over almost 800 years old by the time Paul is writing. And when you go to the city of Rome, it's layer upon layer of history in a, a, a fascinating city. When Paul wrote to this church in Rome, there were nearly a million people that were living there. It's, it was the capital of the Roman Empire. And Nero, the emperor, was Nero, who was around 20 years old. Think about that. He had been emperor for three years by the time Paul sends this letter. He was about 16 or 17 years old, depending on what you read, uh, when he became emperor of Rome. So that's uh, uh, pretty amazing. But he followed after uh, Emperor Claudius, and um, we would realize five years or so after Paul writes this letter that Nero would lose his mind, and he would begin to accuse the Christians of creating chaos in Rome. Remember, Rome burnt to the ground, and he accused the Christians of that. This was about five years or so after Paul wrote this letter. So, I mean, it's just right in the middle of a lot going on, and uh, we know that he would end up using Christians as torches to light the city. He would cover them in, in animal skins and send animals into Uh, kill them and to eat them alive, and it was just an incredible thing. So Paul is writing to these Christians just before this is all getting ready to happen to them. And uh, if any letters that would come after the the letter of Rome, you would wonder if the Christians wanted to read it or not. Uh, You would think they'd be a little bit terrified to receive a, a letter from Paul after this. But Question, why did Paul write this letter? Why did he write to these Romans? A few reasons that could have compelled Paul to write this letter. 
Most likely when Paul penned this letter, he was in Corinth. So Kristen talked about Corinth last week. He was in Corinth around 57 A.D. when he wrote the letter to the church in Rome. He had already taken several missionary trips, and he had already written the book or the letter to the Galatians. He had already written a letter, uh, two letters to the uh, Thessalonians, and he had already written two letters to the Corinthians. So uh, here, here, Paul is in Corinth. He's already got some connections going, and he felt he needed to write to this church in Rome. Now, what's important to understand is Paul had never visited Rome. So think about all the other letters he wrote, the Ephesians, Galatians, those kind of things. He had typically went there, he had started a church of some kind. But to the Romans, the, this church in Rome, he had never visited. And so he was wanting to visit this church, but he was making a sort of introduction of himself. And it says in Romans chapter 15, 23, I encourage you to get your Bible. We're going to be looking at several passages in, in Romans, and, and I'm going to put on the gas pedal here, and I'm going to fly for the next little bit. Romans chapter 15, 23. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So he's getting ready to take some money to Jerusalem. He is going to carry this church that's in trouble in Jerusalem. He's going to carry an offering that he collected on his missionary journeys. He's going to take it to Jerusalem, and then he wants to bring it to come to Rome so that Rome can help him get to Spain. And so that's one reason he's introducing himself to this church in Rome. The second probable reason he wanted to visit Rome was his personal connections to the church. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through this, but I find it very fascinating that he has a very important connection in this church in Rome. It's a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. How many have ever heard of Aquila and Priscilla, all right? So they are found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, we love Italy. We love Italy. Um, came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation they were tent makers and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Um, we're not sure if Aquila and Priscilla knew Christ before they met Paul, it's likely they might have heard of Christ or uh, been a part of that. But what is interesting is that Aquila and Priscilla are in Corinth because they were Jews. That's why they're in Corinth, because Emperor Claudius, remember Nero follows him after his death, they were in Corinth because Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. Now, this was the second time this happened, but this group of Jews were kicked out, and they fled to different parts. Aquila and Priscilla ended up in Corinth. Paul shows up in Corinth. They're tent makers by trade. He's a tent maker by trade. They have this common element. They're both Jews, and they 
they decide, you know what, let's work together. Let's, let's do that. So Paul lives with them, and uh, this is how Aquila and Priscilla uh, got acquainted with Paul. We understand that Aquila and Priscilla were instrumental in helping develop the early leaders of the early church. So uh, leaders like Apollos. Anybody ever heard of Apollos? Well, Aquila and Priscilla were the ones who helped uh, Apollos come to a better understanding of Jesus Christ. We understood that Apollos was a disciple of John. So we're getting ready to read what happens there, but he's a disciple of John, and Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla, we'll talk about that at the very end, depending on how you read it, sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's the other, but they began to share with him really what the repentance of John was all about, or the baptism of John, and they, they helped him understand the way more perfectly. So they moved from Corinth, or from uh, from. Rome to Corinth around 52 AD, by the time Paul writes his epistle back to Rome, Aquila and Priscilla have moved back to Rome because Emperor Nero is now in charge and he is allowing Jews back into Rome. So now Paul, who had lived with Aquila and Priscilla, is going to write a letter to Rome. He wants to go to Rome, but he has this really great connection there, and that's Aquila and Priscilla. So there's this common interest uh, that he has. And, and so he most likely wrote and wanted to go to Rome because he had some friends there, although he himself had never been there. Everybody following me so far? Everybody's good? All right. Now, we surmise that this church in Rome was a collection of people from all over the world. And what's important to understand is that they are both Jews and Gentiles making up the church in Rome. Gentiles who were gruff sailors, meticulous tradesmen, wealthy idolaters, enslaved Christians, these were all making up the church in Rome. And like most Roman uh, empire cities, as Kristen pointed out last week, it was also the hotbed of sexual immorality and uh, idol worship. So this is all going on in this Gentile environment, but now you have Jews who are here as well, elite Jewish leaders and tradesmen who are Jews that are like Aquila that are living there but are Christians. And you're bringing together these two massively different cultures together under one roof. And when we consider the content of the letter to the Romans, it's interesting to understand that the church was both Jews and Gentiles. Now, we could guess that it was predominantly Gentiles because of the exile that the Jews had. So by the time Paul begins to write this letter, Jews are starting to come back. But it's probably more predominantly Gentile than it is Jew. Now, this created a great divide in the church. So you read that through the whole New Testament about the Jews and the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. Well, now they're, they're going to church together and... The Gentiles, or the Romans, are not abiding by Jewish traditions, thus creating this massive cultural divide. These Jews who were there and they had their traditions and customs and the law, 
they're struggling with the idea that these Gentiles are not abiding by these traditions. Think about culture in America. Think about the cultural challenge in America. America likes to think of itself as the great melting pot. But cultures and traditions get embedded in how we think. And more importantly for the church, can become points of division. Even in an American culture, within the church, there are points of division based on culture, based on tradition. And so this is evident. These, these cultural distinctions and heritages and traditions were on display in Rome. And you have the Jews who are living out their Christian faith while maintaining Jewish customs and traditions and holidays, and and they are concerned about what they eat and where it came from. And then you've got these Roman Gentiles who are living out their Christian faith with great liberty, not concerned about Jewish holidays, traditions, customs, or food, and were even involved still in sexual immorality. And so it's a massive cultural uh, difference going on, and you're merging these two cultures, and this is who Paul is writing to in Rome. He's writing to a church that's a mix of two massively different cultures. Is this food kosher? What about circumcision? Should we follow the Sabbath? There are all these questions going on in the church, and it's from this perspective and knowledge that he writes to this group. Now, Paul understood that a church divided would not stand, and it would not be capable of supporting the work of God around the world, and specifically, his work in Spain. He knew that if this church was splintered apart, it wasn't going to be able to do what it needed to do. And so he, in his uh, epistle, is trying to bring balance to both the importance of Judaism to the Gentile in their experience of salvation, at the same time reaffirming that the law was not the means of salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ was the means of salvation. Now, we've been using a resource. We have a resource that we're recommending, Handbook on the Epistle of Paul. The author is Jeremy Painter, and he says, Paul patiently demonstrated from Israel's own scripture that it was Israel's God who had remained faithful in the face of chronic human unfaithfulness. That Paul pointed those Gentiles to Israel's God. That's who he's pointing them to. And ultimately, Paul was looking to affirm the power of God's righteousness and the practice of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. So, now we're going to even go faster. Look at, let's look at some key thoughts and basic outlines of, outline of Romans. We'll divide it into four major sections. And you, there's other ways of looking at it, but we'll look at it like this. The first section is Romans 1 through 4. This section is really dedicated to the power of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. It reveals God's righteousness. Romans 1.15, you're going to uh, probably uh, have a, a good reference on a lot of these passages. They're pretty common. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, right? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for 
the Greek. So he's already diving into it. Right from the beginning, he's addressing the divine. For in it, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Paul is demonstrating that our only hope for salvation is through Jesus Christ, and it's called the gospel, and salvation comes through only the righteousness of God. Now, righteousness is a very rich word in Scripture. You see it through the Old Testament and New. It means that basically God always does what's right and just. It means that God is faithful to his promises. So in practical terms, it's God's approval. So Psalm chapter 9, verse 8 in the Old Testament says, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. And so it's God's justice, it's God's rightness in the world. And Paul is tying salvation through Jesus Christ to the Old Testament term of righteousness. So chapters 1 through 4 deal with the idea of God's righteousness. And in dealing with God's righteousness, Paul has to address our unrighteousness. And so Paul begins to address this in Romans 1.18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his external power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their own thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul is hearkening back to the very beginning of creation. And so therefore, no one, whether you're Jew or Greek, should stand in arrogance and say that you are righteous on your own. We're all unrighteous. So Paul says in Romans chapter 2, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the what? Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first. And also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Again, he's weaving that idea that the Gentiles, and we'll, we'll see it in just a moment. He's making sure the Gentiles, while they, they understand their salvation is from Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, he's telling them, don't get too arrogant about the fact that you're not a Jew. He's saying it comes, it came through the law it came through the Jewish nation, and so he keeps pointing that back. He says, but there is no partiality with God. Then Paul makes clear that the Jewish law or Jewish heritage does not save us, chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe um, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he's telling them that justification comes to them by Jesus Christ. What is justification? It's another rich word in Scripture, but it means to be declared righteous. So God is righteous, you are unrighteous, how do I become righteous? I have to be justified. And he's telling them both that 
that everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. The only way we're righteous, the only way we're justified or declared righteous is by Jesus Christ. And being declared righteous, we are approved by God. When we're justified, we are approved by God. We get a new status. We get a new family. We get a new future. Somebody say amen. So he's telling them that humanity, even though all of humanity, Jew and Greek, are both unrighteous, they can become justified. The second section of Romans chapter, uh, or Romans is Romans chapter 5 through 8, and it shows how God creates a new humanity. God creates a new humanity. And so by faith, we understand we are righteous. It's through the pro- this process of God justifying us through Jesus Christ that God creates a new humanity. So let's, let's look as Paul uh, kind of works through this. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have been declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. You and I are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We shall be saved from wrath through Jesus Christ, through him. So Paul then points back to the first man, Adam, and he contrasts that with how the obedience of Christ, uh, how Christ obeyed what he was called to do, and that we all can be made new in Christ. So let's keep going. Romans chapter 5, 12. Therefore, just as one, as through one man, sin entered the world, that's Adam, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. And then verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made, what's he pointing us to? Righteousness, that will be made righteous. It's through Jesus Christ and his obedience. And and he says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there's a new hope for us in Jesus Christ. So how is it then that we're partakers of righteousness? And I feel like I'm going to kick it into even faster gear here. Y'all ready? Okay. It's important to consider that the church, this church in Rome has already experienced the power of repentance, the power of baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So when you read the book of Romans, this is not to new converts. This is not to people who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. This is written to people who have already experienced repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And this is why I believe this to be so. Remember Paul. He met and he lived with Priscilla and Aquila. Does everybody remember we talked about that? Now, we read that in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 24, tells us this experience with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. 
Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only of the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What were they explaining to him? What was his inaccuracy. It was the baptism of John. And when he desired to cross the Acacia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is Christ. This ends chapter 18 of the book of Acts. Everybody still following? Now let's pick up Acts chapter 19, verse 1. Paul, it says, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Remember, with Priscilla and Aquila, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. He said to them, into what were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. So we can assume that Apollos had that same misunderstanding, that gap in his theology, that Priscilla and Aquila corrected, how did they know how to correct it? Because Paul would have taught it to them. So Paul comes to this, these people, just like Apollos, and he says, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? They say, we haven't heard of it. Then, then something's not right about your baptism. How were you baptized? John's baptism. Oh, okay. Let me help you with that. John, indeed, baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. This is what Aquila and Priscilla would have come to experience themselves. It's what they taught, and it's what they would have taken back with them to Rome. So when Paul writes to the Romans, or that book in Rome, he's writing to people who have experienced repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So he's writing to the saints in Rome, like Aquila and Priscilla. He's telling them how to be partakers of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about in Romans right now. He's saying, here's how you can be partakers of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's saying, it's already happened to you. But he is reaffirming doctrinally what has happened. So let's pick it up. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may, be, may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He's referencing something. Died to sin. How did you die to sin? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ have... Uh, or as, as we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. He's, he's acknowledging, you've been baptized. You've died out to sin. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." 
And so he's pointing them, how are we partakers of the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ? He says, when you are baptized into his death and you walk in newness of life. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, you come alive, you walk in the newness of life. And this is such a rich uh, section of scripture, but it's interesting that he works back and forth. You see him working back and forth between the Jews and, and, and the Greeks, and he's, he's going back and forth between this Gentile mindset and Jewish mindset. And he's weaving this tapestry, and I'm not going to, for sake of time, you can read Romans chapter 8. And uh, that kind of concludes that section. The third section, Romans 9 through 11, shows us how God fulfills his promise to Israel. And again, while salvation can't be obtained by the Jewish law or traditions, Paul felt it important that the Gentile believers understand the importance of God's promise to Israel, that the Gentiles' own experience with Jesus Christ is because of Jewish history. So you see him pulling those two groups together, groups that were divided, he's tying them back together. And so for sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of this. You can, you can read through it. Uh, but in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For they, who are they? Jews who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, being ignorant of God's righteousness, ignorant of Jesus Christ, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And so he's going to point them to this promise of Israel. Um, let's look at uh, chapter 11 real quick. Chapter 11, verse 11. He says, I say then, have they, who's they? Jews who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. How did the Gentiles get saved? Because of the Jews. And so verse 18, Paul specifically addresses the Gentiles. He said, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. This Jewish root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. What's he talking about? Branches, these original branches, these original, these Jews who didn't believe were Broken off. He's using this kind of metaphor. And he says, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Jews fell away so that Gentiles could be connected. And he would say, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. But what does he say? Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Don't think that just because some of them rejected that they can't come back. And so he's, he's again, pulling at the Gentiles. Now, he just got done filleting the, the Jews, and then he just pulls back the Gentiles. For he said, if, if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature and the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I'm going to move on. The final and fourth section is Romans 12 through 16. 
And it shows us, Paul kind of is landing the plane here, and he's going to show us how this gospel unifies the church. The faith in Jesus Christ brings both Jew and Gentiles together to be one body of believers. Romans chapter eleven thirty six. remember, he, 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 we, that's the end of that section, and he, he concludes uh, that section with an amen. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Everyone say amen. amen. Then he writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of this, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul now is going to add application of the gospel, this doctrine, this righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. He's saying it's not up here in the clouds. Let me tell you what you need to do because of the righteousness of God that you've been given. He said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And you read verse or chapter 12. He says, for as many of you, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So now he's, he's talking about membership to the body. He's bringing Jews and Gentiles together to say this gospel had a purpose, and that's for you to live in harmony with each other. Having then gifts differing, verse 6, according to the grace that is given to you, let, let those, if they prophesy, prophesy, and minister, let them minister. If they teach, teach, and he goes through the gifts, and he says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, and he just goes on and on and on about living and loving. And Paul would then talk to them about submitting to government. He would talk to them about loving one another. He would talk to them about wearing Christ in your everyday life. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul continues making application to the righteousness of God in our life through Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, when we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples or the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if you as a Gentile think a Jew is weak, or you as a Jew think a Gentile is weak, you ought to bear with them and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, that Christ did nothing but he bared the weight of our sin. And he's saying, if Christ can do that, you can bear with one another. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you to be like-minded towards one another according to who? Christ Jesus. It all points back to Christ Jesus, that you may, be, that you may with one mind and one mouth, one mind, one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another. This is, goes back to that love one another series that Pastor Kristen talked about. Receive one another. That word receive isn't just acknowledge you in the pew. 
He's telling the Gentiles to receive, to bring into relationship Jews. He's telling the Jews to bring into relationship Gentiles. Receive one another just as what Christ also received us to the glory of God. And he concludes chapter 15 with this thought, now the God of peace be with you all. Good luck with that. That's how I interpret that. Good luck with that. Amen. Now, it feels like the letter's over. Give me just two more minutes. It feels like the letter's over, but it's not. Don't close this letter, even though this is the chapter 16 is credits. All right? How many of you watch credits after a movie? Most people don't. You're done. But this, this I, I encourage you to read the credits in Romans. There's some things to consider. He mentions 25 people, or over 25 people. People like Rufus, most likely the son of Simon, the Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus. He acknowledges that what happened at the cross, and Rufus now is a leader. That's an amazing thing. And importantly, Paul mentions women. Amen? He first mentions Phoebe. Yeah, you could, you could read chapter 16 and, and you could miss it. But he mentions Phoebe. He said, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in, in that place, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. This is not a, a minor thing that Phoebe's mentioned. First off, he calls her a deacon. That word is translated servant, but it's actually deacon. She's a deaconess in the church. She is involved. She is handed the precious letter of Romans to carry it to Rome. That meant she had some authority in the church. And so she's bringing it to Rome, and most likely she is going to read it. And so you've got Phoebe. Then Paul mentions Aquila and Priscilla. He said, but he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Now he switches those names around, and most scholars believe that the reason he switched those names around is because Priscilla was more prominent in ministry than Aquila, that she was actually doing a, a, a more major role in ministry than Aquila. And so he said, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also of the churches of the Gentiles, likewise greet the church that is in their house. So now they have a house church in Rome. And he references Priscilla and Aquila. She, she has a prominent role. And then Romans 16, verse 7, greet that person and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. And many scholars believe, and I, I, I believe, that she was an apostle. Junia was a woman, and she is listed as prominent in the church and has a role of somebody who is sent. And so I am thankful today, when I read the credits, for the women leaders and preachers, and teachers, and pastors at the Calvary Church. Does anybody else appreciate the great women who serve this church in leadership? And I'm thankful 
today for the heritage of this church in that regard. And I'm not here to criticize other churches, but I'm telling you, I'm thankful we don't have one hand tied behind our back. And so Paul, Paul writes this, and he affirms these individuals in the church. He valued them. And so Paul teaches us the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that righteousness of God comes through Jesus Christ, and he affirms the practice of the gospel, that we are to love one another, and we are to value people, we're to bring people into our life of all walks of life, laying down our culture, laying down what we like and don't like, so that people can feel a part of the body of Christ. Amen. All right. Um, We're going to do the app time as homework. Can you stand with me? Go ahead and put the app time up there. I want you to think about a time when Jesus' love for you affected the way you treated someone in your life. When's the last time the love of Jesus Christ affected the way you handled the person who cut you off on the road? Or how you handled a situation at work? How did the love of Jesus, how did the love of Jesus affect how you sat in this room today? Who you're going to talk to after the service today? How does it affect how you interact with your children? How does the love of Jesus? Paul says there's no reason, even though you come from a far, far distance from one another, Jews and Greeks, that we're all one in Christ. Let this mind be in you. So I want to pray for you tonight, pray for us as a congregation that God continues to use us to love one another as he loved us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for your word that comes alive and it speaks so clearly to us. Lord, in a, in a world that's culturally divided, I pray that the church, God, would not allow the world, God, to, to be how we think. Transform our minds Renew our minds so that we can understand the love of Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. When we opposed you, when we rejected you, you brought us close. I pray we would take that same love that you gave us and share it with other people around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.